you guys have probably heard the word self-care. I'm assuming you read that in the, in the list there and said, okay, that's interesting. Uh, the concept of self-care has gotten more attention in the last years. It's sort of picking up steam. Uh, there's even numbers to back that up. According to Google Analytics, you know, so how many times people have searched for this, the number of searches uh, for the phrase self-care has doubled since 2016. So it's popularizing, it's getting familiar, it's getting more normalized. And in particular, in 2020, you guys remember then, right, 2020, there was one particular month where it quadrupled. Any guesses when that was? It was April, so right after, right after everything got announced, all the lockdowns started, the two weeks began. Um, yeah, so it all quadrupled right around then. So the chatter about self-care has only increased with the pandemic and all the stressors that have come with it. And certainly, uh, I think in our culture, there's a growing uh, understanding and appreciation of the reality of mental health and even mental health concerns. That probably has something to do with that. Even in the last um, two years or so, the research has come out that has said that somewhere between 30 to 40% of college-age adults, you guys, report experiencing disruptive levels of anxiety or depression in this last year. It makes sense that this topic would get some attention. You don't have to raise your hand, but my, uh, how many of you, think about it, how many of you have experienced might be a part of that 30 to 40%? I'm guessing that's why some of you are in this room. The World Health Organization defines self-care as the ability of individuals, families, and communities to promote health, prevent disease, maintain health, and to cope with illness and disability with or without the support of a healthcare provider. So the concept is clearly being popularized. So what do you do with that? That idea, when Jesus comes along and begins to say things like this, it's right at the top of your outline under the, uh, under the quote. Um, it's Mark 8.34, he says, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and yet forfeit his soul? Or take, for example, Romans 12.1. Maybe you're familiar with it. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Those verses sound like the direct opposite of self-care, don't they? So how do we understand as Christians, trying to understand our world from a biblical perspective, how do we understand the real limitations that we face while understanding that our calling is to be living sacrifices? That's what we're talking about here in this breakout. So what we're going to do is break this up into kind of two sections that will walk us through the content. Uh, the first half is we're going to talk about God's plan in self-care and really to sort of uh, evaluate that term and, and understand, is this biblical? Is it a biblical concept to consider self-care? And the second half of what we're going to talk about is that God's purpose in all of this is self-sacrifice. So that's how we're going to walk through this. We're going to hit a lot of scripture as we go. It's all on your handout, which is on page 26 and 27. If you're not there, you will be well served by looking at that as we go. Like I said, there's going to be a lot of scripture. So God's plan in self-care. Um, we're going to look at this in a couple chunks, his provision and his design in it. So what is he providing for us and, and what is he designing it to do? His provision. Now, before we dig into it, let, let's 
kind of define, again, the world's term. How is the world using this? And then we'll compare that with the scriptures. What is self-care? So actually understand it. It is summarized uh, perhaps in popular metaphors like the oxygen mask. You guys heard this, this analogy before? It's the whole idea that on a plane, in a crisis, these oxygen masks drop from the, drop from the ceiling, right? You've seen this before. And the whole idea of self-care is often compared to this in that if you've got like a small child with you, you got to put your own oxygen mask on first before you put your child's on. You got to get the uh, you got to get yourself situated first so you don't pass out and therefore you're unable to help a person who needs you. So that's a, that's an illustration uh, for this idea. An article on Everyday Health website clarifies it like this: it says self care is not this is important. Self care is not some synonymous with self-indulgence or being selfish. Yeah, that's helpful. Self-care means taking care of yourself so that you can be healthy, you can be well, you can do your job, you can help and care for others, and you can do all the things you need to and want to do to accomplish in a day. I.e., what they're saying, any Parks and Rec fans in the room? Okay, a couple of you guys. Okay, so there's two characters in Parks and Rec that they have this whole thing called treat yourself. And they just run around and indulge. They just spend stupid amounts of money on anything they want. It's just absolute self-indulgence. That's not self-care. Um, it is doing what you need to do to meet your needs to facilitate endurance. That's, that's the, the definition they're offering to us. Now, here is the question. That sounds good, right? But the question that we as Christians have got to ask is, is that biblical? It might be popular, but is it biblical? Is it something that God commends to us? So, so here's a couple of scriptures that maybe begin to, to flesh that out for us. Consider Mark 6.30, Mark chapter 6, verses 30 to 32. Uh, that's on your outline there. It's a story from the Gospels. It says, The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done uh, and taught. And Jesus said to them, he said to them, Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. And, and they went away in a boat to a desolate place by themselves. So you see what Jesus does here. In the midst of a very hectic ministry season, Jesus himself leads his disciples away to rest, that he is the one pulling them away to get recharged. He knows that they are limited, that they are hungry, they're probably tired, and that they need to be rejuvenated. And so he pulls them away to get them that rest. God knows our limitations. Jesus demonstrates that. He knows the disciples need that recharge there. Now, if you know the story, you know they get interrupted anyway, and Jesus proceeds to minister to them. But consider another example. This is from the Old Testament, 1 Kings 19, verses 4 to 8. Uh, the context is that um, Elijah the prophet has just had a major ministry victory followed by a threat against his life. So big up, big down. And so... He goes away, he flees, and it says, but he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree. And he asked that he might die. Does that sound familiar? It's a little bit of Jonah. Uh, and he, went, he laid down and slept under a broom tree. And behold, uh, an angel touched him and said, arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was a head, uh, at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and drank and laid down again. And the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. 
And he arose and ate and drank and went in strength of that food 40 days and 40 nights uh, to the Mount of God. So you see in that story, uh, he is despairing in, in light of this threat against his life. Uh, and, and God pulls him away, meets him in the middle of this, this wilderness, and gives him a snack. Verse 5, arise and eat. And God provides miraculously this, this cake and this jar of water. Um, you know, maybe you've seen the meme that, you know, don't forget that sometimes God's ministry to us is a, is a nap and a snack. Uh, so he does this with, with Elijah to rejuvenate him and then calls him to go 40 days and 40 nights to Mount Horeb. So we see these examples where God demonstrates to us our, our limitations and, and meets his people in the midst of their limitations. Now, what is his purpose or his design in this? What is this meant to, to demonstrate about God's understanding of us and the way he's created us and how we're to understand him? Well, there is a, a primary or a handful of differences about the biblical approach to this than the world. And so that's what we want to look at in this, this second chunk of this point is design. There's a few things here that I want to uh, demonstrate for you. First is that it is primarily, our understanding from the scriptures is that it's primarily God's care, not self-care is that it's better understood as God's care and not self-care. What will help us to endure is not primarily me taking care of me, but me looking to God who will take care of me. It's God and the God-given means of rejuvenation that fuel endurance. It's not us trying to preserve ourselves, but throwing ourselves on God who will preserve us even as we are poured out like living sacrifices. Did, did you notice in both of those scriptures that I read before, in the Mark passage and in the First Kings passage, that it is God himself who initiates the care of the person. The disciples have just poured themselves out, and it's Jesus who says, let me take care of you. Come away and get the rest. And it's Elijah who is fleeing, and God meets him with his needs, even those very physical needs, like a nap and a snack. See, it's God is the one who provides it. 2 Corinthians 1.9, it's on your outline there, shows us this a little bit. He says that, indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. Okay, so maybe some of you have been stressed before. Do you ever feel like maybe some of your exams mounting up or the stressors in your life? Do you feel like you could say that? I feel like I just got a death sentence. So Paul, to the Corinthians, said, in their suffering, in their persecution, the things that were going on, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But listen to this. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. You see, what, what Paul is saying is that God intentionally put Paul and his associates in a position of suffering and experiencing their limitations such that they would rely on him and not themselves. And friends, I think, I think God butts us up against, up against our limitations and sometimes through suffering to do the same thing, to teach us and to train us to not rely on ourselves, but onto him. Part of endurance, what self-care is trying to fuel, right? Part of endurance is learning to live within those limitations and developing healthy patterns in order to endure. But at the end of the day, this isn't you in your quest to preserve your life. It's you resting in God who will enable you to spend and be spent with, quote, all his energy 
as Paul says in Colossians 1.29. Friends, we have something far more robust than self-care. We have a God who cares for us. That's what we've been hearing in these last two main sessions, right? So uh, the biblical perspective of this is that it's not primarily self-care. It's God's care of us. Now, perhaps a better way to understand then what the world comes at and says self-care, do these things, right? This doesn't negate uh, some of those things that fall under that category of self-care. The things like setting up good patterns and healthy eating and getting a good, good sleep. We'll talk about those things in a minute. Um, but here's perhaps a better way to understand those things. True self-care is humbly submitting to the real limitations that God has placed on us. I'm going to say that again because I know that's a mouthful. True self-care is humbly submitting to the real limitations that God has placed on us. Many, thank you. Many of these things that self-care <laughs> practitioners suggest can be biblically understood as submission to God, as laying down your will and obedience to God. Now, there's tons of examples of this we could look at. We'll look at a few here. Um, Consider, example, the encouragement to get proper sleep. Self-care practitioners, they, they talk about this. Like, you need to get good sleep. Uh, there are whole books, there's whole industries beginning, uh, developed around the idea that we need good sleep, and particularly as Americans, we're terrible at it. Uh, and so there's a huge encouragement to get proper sleep. Consider what the scripture says about this. Psalm 127, verse 2, it's in your packet there. It is in vain that you rise up early and go, to let, let, go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, he gives to his beloved sleep. You see that? How many of you read that first line, right? It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil. How many of you guys, even in the last week, were eating the bread of anxious toil? You were feasting on anxiety and toiling and all of this. He says, it is vanity, it's meaningless that you rise up early and go late to rest right? Because God gives to his beloved sleep. It is a good gift that God has given you. Do you hear then in Psalm 127 verse 2 that there is a call to humble submission? See, if you are eating the bread of anxious toil, it is because you are taking matters into your own hands. You are trusting in your strength to get things done. And yet what he is doing is exposing even our pride in that. God, I know better than the limitations that you have placed on me. And rather, he says, submit and get the sleep that I have given to you because I love you. Do you see uh, that even in that, there is a humble submission to the real limitations that God has placed on us. That means that I need to lay down my pride, I need to lay down my will, that's what submission is, and trust that God has placed good things, good limitations in my life. Consider the work-rest pattern God sets for us, uh, that we're called to work six days and rest one. God did this himself, though he had no need to do it, and so he set the pattern for us, to work six, rest one. He built that rhythm into the week and has called us to submit to him by resting. You work hard and then you rest well. 
or, or consider the call from Matthew 6. Maybe you're familiar with this. It's a, Matthew 6, Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount does this whole extended discourse on not being anxious. Maybe you're familiar. That's the passage where he says, God takes care of the stupid little birds. He takes care of the flowers of the field. You are much more valuable than stupid little birds. God's going to take care of you. That's Matthew 6 in a nutshell. But he says, do not be anxious. It's a command, not a suggestion. Do not be anxious. Rather, submit to God's care for you. Seek him first in his righteousness, and he will uh, add these things to you. And so he reminds us, even in that passage, that we cannot do everything. God made us limited. And in humility, we must admit our limitations and discipline ourselves to live in the means that God has provided Consider the call from Hebrews 4 to, it actually says in that passage, to strive to enter the rest that Christ gives us. In other words, even in a spiritual sense, submit to God who has finished the work of securing our salvation. That we do not have to work to earn it. God has died for me, and that means that God will also care for me, and so I don't need to do this on my own. Listen, that means then as an application of this, that we might set up good, humble, disciplined habits in our lives. The things that people that talk about self-care talk about. Get good rest, get good eating, those sorts of things. Listen, um, we ensure that we go to church. We take time off. We maintain a schedule so that we keep our priorities in their right spots. We spend time in community with other believers, and we eat vegetables. Okay? All of these things are ways that we can worshipfully submit to a God who has built us to operate within limits that he has set. He has limited you. And will you submit to those things? Friends, I want to submit to you that you will get a reward in heaven for laying down your life and spending yourself. But you will not get one for dying because you poorly managed your life. Okay? So self-care is a call to live within the limitations that God has placed on us and to humbly submit to him saying, my good God has limited me and my life best thrives when I live within the limitations that he has placed on me. The third thing is this. So it's it's primarily God care, not self-care. Second is true self-care is humbly submitting to the real limitations that God has placed on us. Third thing is it's to fuel self-sacrifice. I'll be the hook into the second point. But um, if you even go, go back to, um, and you can listen to this. Um, sorry, it's not in your outline there. But in that Everyday Health uh, article, they sort of demonstrate the t- where this all terminates, what the point of self-care is. It, it terminates on this. It's so that you can help and care for others, and you can do all the things that you need to and want to accomplish in a day. Self-care, in their definition, is to fuel tasks, It is to build resilience for endurance. In other words, self-care cannot be an end to itself. Right? Self-care without self-sacrifice will turn into self-worship. Self-care without self-sacrifice will wind up as self-worship. Now, a human condition... Our sin nature, even still operating in in the lives of Christians, guys, it bends us ever inward. 
And so we will take those limitations and those, uh, those things that God has placed in the world to refresh us and to rejuvenate us and to bless us, and, and we will turn them inward into self-worship unless it moves us to self-sacrifice. To put it positively, self-care is then for the purpose of extending our ability to serve God and do good to others, to be filled up so that we can keep pouring out. The story of one of the Puritan writers uh, who the guy would get like three hours of sleep a night because he'd stay up studying the Word of God and writing and ministering, and he preached and preached and preached and preached, and then he died at like age 30. I mean, the ministry that the man had was phenomenal, but... That lack of living within the means that God gave him, or the limitations that God gave him, cut off his ministry early. So friends, self-care without self-sacrifice will wind up as self-worship. The purpose of self-care is to extend our ability to self-sacrifice. At the top of your outline, there's a quote that kind of captures this from Tim Castile, works in campus ministry. He says this, this is not a self-care that terminates on oneself. It doesn't end there. Godly personal formation cannot end on itself. It is going somewhere. It is Godward and others-focused self-discipline. That's what self-care is. So that leads us to the second, the second point, that God's purpose is self-sacrifice. Where is this all going? It's, it's self-sacrifice. Now, let me read, read for you guys. Uh, do I want to do that yet? No, I don't want to do that yet. Hold up. We'll get there. Um, no, I do. Okay, so 2 Corinthians 4, 7 to 18. But we have this treasure in jars of clay. It's Paul speaking again. To show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So here's the summary. Death is at work in us, but life in you. Since we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke. We also believe and so also speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. For it's all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. So we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Perhaps you heard me as I emphasized that Paul begins to punch this point home. God has called us to a life of death. Death is at work in us, but life in you. This is self-sacrifice. Consider, though, before we, we dig into the, the what do we do of it, consider the glory of self-sacrifice. Um, some of you guys have been around when I've spoken before. I've told you the story of our adoption, that we adopted our three older kids from Ukraine. All three of our kids have, our older kids have special needs. And uh, the judge asked us at our first court hearing when we were adopting our, our son Noah and our daughter Nora, the judge asked us, why would you waste your life doing this? She said, you are young 
and you have your whole life ahead of you, why would you do this? She knew their medical complexity. And she understood that what we were signing up to do was to take on the lifelong task of caring for these kids. Friends, consider for a second, who are the heroes in our culture? Who are the people that we praise and we loud and we, we hold up? What are, they most mark, what are they mostly marked by? It's a willingness to lay down their life, to sacrifice. The ones who risk themselves in order to give life to others. In fact, I think all of us can point to people who sacrificed themselves for us to make our lives better. Maybe somebody can point to a parent who thrived to, or, or, or just strived to provide for you, poured themselves out, or, or somebody who went out of their way, maybe even to offer a gentle correction. They risked it to, to nudge you along. I think we can point to people who sacrificed themselves and our lives were improved as a result, that they experienced death at work in us, but life in you. And my guess is, for a lot of us, we could look at the reverse of that, that we could see people who refused to self-sacrifice, and our lives were worsened for that. See, in our adoption of our kids, we changed the course of our lives. Adopting three kids with special needs was a calculated and, and a reasoned choice to sacrifice. We knew what we were signing up for. We chose, and still to this day, we, we fight our sin nature to choose to lay down our lives, our comfort, our desires in order to give life to these kids. We did that because we knew that that's just the course of this life, that self-sacrifice only lasts this life. We would be spent because we know that we have millions of years in eternity coming our way. And that's the point that Paul ends on. We don't lose heart, verse 16. Our outer self is wasting away, but inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. We're looking to the things that are unseen. Friends, it's so Paul, back at the beginning of this passage, says we have this treasure. We have this treasure of the gospel that we are, are saved not because of anything we've done, not because we can be productive or give a lot to God, or, uh, but because he has a lot to give. And that truth, that knowledge that God, by his grace, is ushering us into eternity, that truth transforms Paul. That transforms, and he calls that treasure. Now, look at this passage. Where do you typically store your valuables? We have a lockbox in our house where our Social Security papers, our kids' birth certificates, all of that stuff is in. My guess is that you don't, when you think of you know, money or, or papers like that, you don't typically stick them in Tupperware, right? That's kind of a dumb idea. Um, because Tupperware is the thing that you get and you, you just throw it away when you're done because you're going to lose the lid anyway and then it'll materialize somewhere else, right? It's just disposable. We don't stick valuables in disposable containers. We put them in lockboxes. Uh, we put them in safes. We put them in banks, those sort of things. But look where God puts his treasure. He puts his treasure in jars of clay, which was the Tupperware of the ancient world. The point of self-sacrifice, listen, the jars of clay were disposable. It was just common that if you, if you need to get the contents out of a jar of clay, you just smashed it because you didn't need the thing. You could just get some more clay and fire it up, and you got another vessel. So God puts his treasure, understand, 
He puts his treasure in disposable vessels. And, and that's us. Disposable in that we are weak, we are breakable, we're unimpressive. And, and be, be careful with this, but in a sense, disposable. And yet this is where God delights to store his invaluable treasure. God is insane in our estimation. Why would you put your treasure in people like me? You see, in verse 7 there, Paul says it is to show that the surpassing power belongs not to us, but to God. We undergo all this suffering, and yet he sustains us. That's verse 8 through 9. We're afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed. You see, God sustains them even in the midst of the suffering and the anxious toil. Friends, the norm... The norm of the Christian life is to experience death. And Paul says it three times in verses 10 to 12 to get the point across. We always carry the body of death, or the body, uh, in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may be manifest in our bodies. Verse 11, we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our mortal flesh. And just in case you missed it, death is at work in us, but life in you. Death feels like death, and we shouldn't be surprised when it hurts or is uncomfortable. This is normal. This is normal for the Christian life. Jesus makes this very point in, in a passage in Mark 8 that I read at the beginning. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and for the gospels will save it. What does it profit a man to gain the world, whole world and lose his soul? Friends, it is the normal course of the Christian life to experience death, to give life to others, because that was the course of Christ's life. That's what he did. And as Christians, or, or little Christ as the word means, we follow his footsteps. We go where he goes in the way that he went. Our little deaths do not have the ability to save us. Only Jesus' big death did. But we honor him, and as Paul points out, we display him and his power as the jar of clay cracks and breaks. As we experience death, the life of Jesus begins to seep out of the cracks in order to give life to others. That's the calling for us. Now, that stuff about self-care is to fuel that, is to lengthen that. The model of self-sacrifice, those of you that just got the book, The J-Curve, I'm about to introduce you, give a little spoiler, what you're going to read. Paul Miller, in his book, The J-Curve, uses this illustration to show us what the Christian life looks like. You can map it on a J-Curve, and that's that illustration on your handout there. That Jesus' J-Curve, he died, and then he was risen, he rose, and that in a similar way, we experience little deaths and little resurrections. On the day-to-day -day basis, we uh, death is at work in us, but life in you, and one day Christ will provide resurrections. Paul Miller says that these deaths can fall into three categories. I think this is really helpful. It's repentance J-curves, that we die when we admit our sin and leave it. There's a death involved in that. That's a, that's a repentance J-curve. There, there are suffering J-curves. We die as the Lord ordains hardship in our lives and glorifies himself through it. That's a suffering J-curve. And the third is a sacrifice J-curve where we choose to take on death, hardship, or loss in order to bless others and honor God. 
Friends, the normal course for the Christian life is that we sacrifice to give life to others so that God gets the glory. Acknowledging our limitations and all that self-care is not antithetical to that. It's not an opposition to that. Friends, the pattern is that we spend ourselves and then are rejuvenated by the means that God has given us so that we can be spent again until the Lord takes us home. And all of this brings him glory. And anything less than that perspective will cycle into self-worship. God has called us. The model is self-sacrifice. While this leads us to, to the power, what does God actually accomplish through this? Uh, all of that, right, all that self-sacrifice, all that dying, right, would be crushing. It'd kill us if we followed a dead Jesus. But we don't. He's risen and alive, and he's doing great today. That hope is the hook of the J-curve that Jesus resurrected, and we will too. Despite the pain of death being at work in Paul, he, he perseveres, and, and you see it in verse 14 and 15 of that, that passage, that he believes God, and so he continues speaking. Since we have the same spirit of faith, according to what is written, I believed and so I spoke, we also believe and so we also speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. What fuels the self-sacrifice is knowing that the ultimate care that God will bring is resurrection. You will die someday, but you will be resurrected. And all the self-sacrifice, all the things you give up in this life, you're not going to miss them. They'll be restored a hundredfold. See, he's tipping us off here to what fuels his endurance. It's, it's the resurrection. And you see in verse 15, it ultimately ends in, in glory to God. For it's all for your sake, so that grace extends to more and more people. It may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. That's where it's going. Now, this first theme, the idea of resurrection, is what he picks up in that last passage, 16 to, 7, 16 to 18, the last paragraph. See, friends, your campus can offer you me day, or treat yourself day, or slip and slides, or goat yoga, or free Starbucks, or whatever they're giving you. They can give you those things. Something the world will never be able to offer you is the hope of resurrection. All the self-care in the world won't surpass the endurance-boosting power of resurrection hope. Listen, no spa day or vegging out in front of Netflix will be able to sustain you like this. They will all prove vacant. So Paul says that we are struck down. He can say that we are struck down, but not destroyed. And, and later in the book of 2 Corinthians, he says we're sorrowful, like we're actually sad, and yet we are always rejoicing. And so he says we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away. Amen. I feel that. I'll tell you, our daughter Nora, who has cerebral palsy, is 75 pounds today. My shoulders hurt. So we are moving her constantly. And those transitions are getting harder and harder as it goes. I feel outer self is wasting away. And what Jesus promises us, inner self is being renewed day by day. This light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look, you got to fix your eyes on something. As we look, not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are, tr are seen are transient. They don't last, but the things that are unseen are eternal. And so he says the suffering actually prepares us for the resurrection that is coming. Friends, the, the ultimate self-care 
the ultimate thing that will enable longevity, the thing that will allow us to endure long after we should have burnt out and quit and walked away is the living hope of the resurrection. That's what's going to do it. As Paul demonstrates here, we embrace death knowing that life is coming. Certainly our ultimate resurrection is in the new heaven and the new earth where we'll dwell with God. Uh, that's our big H hope. But I think even now we experience little resurrections through the suffering we go through. Paul talks about the, uh, the, the, that we are inwardly are being renewed every day. There are daily resurrections that come. One such resurrection that he mentions here is that we actually loosen our grip on the current world, on this present world. That's what he implies in verse 18, that, that God is using the suffering to, to help him to look not to the things that are seen, but to things that are unseen. God is changing his gaze. And so in other words, what he does through the suffering is that the world will hold less of a tyrannical sway over our lives. Friends, what if, you know, just take one example, what, what if... As I sacrifice for Christ, I learn to care less and less about man's opinion of me. Wouldn't that feel like freedom? Like what if I looked at people less who are, who are transient, right? Their opinion of me is not going to last. God's opinion of me matters far more. If I cared less about that, I would be free. And so God, even in the suffering, loosens our grip on this world. Even in those deaths that we maybe voluntarily sign up for, he loosens our grip. Well, I want to wrap us up with just a couple of real tangible applications. Where does this lead us? How do we do all of this? Well, here's three things, three applications from all this. Remember the resurrection. That's the first one. Paul is intentionally calling this to mind and intentionally choosing to put this before his face. Friends, regularly remind yourself and each other. Remind your fellowship, your friends, your church, all that. Remind each other that God is the God of resurrections. If you lose your life, you will save it, is what Jesus says. That you will experience the death, but God, who raises the dead, will do what only he can do. Friends, this is something that we need to consciously choose to put in front of our brains. None of us in the flesh will naturally embrace the call to die, and so we need to practice remembering his promises. This means that Notice and, and make note of when God does bring about those little resurrections. We see him restore us when we take on a death and praise him for those things. Catalog those things. Friends, we can help our friend see how God is at work in their lives. Do you point those things out to demonstrate, look, look, look at how God is providing for you. Um, often we can be bad at seeing our own growth or God's own work in our, in our lives, and it's helpful to have other people point this out to us. So remember and help others remember the resurrection. Second is this, is redefine suffering. Friends, we must redefine suffering. Let me blow your mind here a little bit. You can redefine suffering and hardship as self-care. You can actually, because we have a God who does judicu, you know, he uses his opponent's own weight against it, he can do that kind of work on our suffering and bring good about it and bring good through it. And so we can actually see that our God uses suffering to bring the best good to us. We can redefine suffering as self-care. How? In 1 Peter 4, 12 to 13, 
Peter says this, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. So don't be surprised. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's suffering, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Friend, what, what he is doing through this is helping us to put our hope and our value in what's coming. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and yet lose his soul? One thing that the resurrection promises of God do is turn suffering into a benefit for us. It pries our hands off of this world. It shifts our hopes into eternity, and therefore it frees us now. So then God actually uses our suffering for our good and for our care. Friends, if God can do that with our suffering, do you realize that that makes us invincible? What can you do to me? My God is going to turn that to good. So, so redefine suffering as a tool in the hands of a master workman who is shaping and preparing you for an eternity. The last is this, is risk. Is risk. You can choose, you can choose, you can choose to experience deaths for Jesus' sake. Unless Jesus returns in our lifetime, listen, friends, none of us is getting out of this life alive. We will all ultimately die. And and it begs the question of how we will spend the one life that God gives us. Because you're going to spend it somehow. Listen, if we get to the end of our lives with really good self-care, but have sacrificed ourselves for nothing, we have wasted our lives. The resurrection and the promises of God enable us to actually take on risks and embrace those deaths. Friends, our culture is obsessed with safety. And that has gotten exasperated in the last year and a half. But God has not promised you safety. He has promised you resurrection. Don't be foolish. Put on your seatbelt, right? But do be a fool for Jesus. We can press past our anxious love of safety and actually embrace deaths for the sake of Christ. Maybe this means attempting to start an evangelistic Bible study with your study group or your team or on your floor or wherever. Maybe it's giving up a high-paying job in order to plug into a church where you, can, where you know you can be ministered to and do good ministry. Maybe it's adopting a bunch of kids. I'd love to talk to you about that. Maybe it's going on a short-term mission trip to see if full-time missions is something God is calling you to. Maybe it's pulling up IamAMissionary.dm.org and researching that. Friends, listen, risk is right. Risk for the sake of Christ is right because you will not lose anything. Resurrection is promised to you. And so, yeah, use the self-care. But use it to fuel endurance for self-sacrifice. Let me pray for us and ask for God's help. And then I'll hang around here a little bit. If you guys have questions, you can come up and ask me. But let me pray for you that we would be people that would embrace his call here. God, thank you that you have placed real limitations on us. God, in our pride, we often are frustrated by those, and we we kick against those at times, and we confess that. But God, you've given those things to us uh, for our good and and to live within those. And God, we pray that as we, we learn to limit ourselves in submission to you, that that would be for the purpose of fueling self-sacrifice. Father, help us to be awed by, by the promise of resurrection and actually liberated and freed by the reality of resurrection that we would be people who take risks for the sake of Christ and the sake of others.
Would you help us to pour ourselves out that others may get life? Would you help us to embrace deaths so that they experience those resurrections? God, all while knowing that you're going to take care of our needs. Um, we can't outgive you. And so we ask for your help to do this. We pray all this for your glory and in Christ's name. Amen.